Hello, everybody. I apologize. Hello, everybody. I apologize. I had technical difficulties on my side again. I will get this figured out over here. I'm still not exactly sure what I did this time. Last time I was able to figure out what I did wrong. This time I have no idea, but here we are. I hope you're all having a fantastic afternoon, evening, wherever you are. It's definitely getting colder here in the Salt Lake Valley. We're already getting close to freezing for the night, uh, 48 degrees. It'll definitely hit freezing or a little bit below. I know a lot of the country has already been in those temperatures. And I know my friend Ethel down in Louisiana was just in the 80s the other day. So definitely some broad temperature ranges out there. And we'll touch on that a little bit when we go over the fall gardening that we've all been working on or trying to get to in my case. First, though, today, we're going to talk about community. And I'm also going to try a different voice. I did not like my voice on the last radio show. And I can definitely change it. And I think it will be a much more comfortable experience, at least for myself. So bear with me as I work on a different range for my voice here. One of the things within community is approaching people with your most comfortable self, your most authentic self, and how do you do that and grow a community? So we'll get to that as well, but that is a part of the whole developing process. Even here for our radio show, we're building on something. We started with the soil, the base of our natural world. Even when you go into the ocean, of course, there is a bed, an ocean bed, which is essentially soil. We'll talk about the other half of what collectively rewilding is. We aren't a collective. We have our own individual wants, desires, needs, challenges, but we're coming together in a community. That's why we're collectively rewilding. There's another business out there that's collective rewilding, and it's this lab that is I don't even really understand what their premise is. It's rather strange. If you come across that when you're searching for collectively rewilding, it has more of that hive-minded mentality. And here in collectively rewilding, we're not trying to dictate to anyone what their path of approaching nature is. We're all coming together as individuals to form a community that supports each other where we are. And why did communities start developing so long ago anyway? What really started humanity into a community environment? In the end, the basic running theory is food. Food production, food gathering, food processing and storing. All of that took a cooperative effort. And so we developed into larger and larger groupings of people. That is community. Now, today, I feel like, and I think that many of us feel like, that has very little to do with what we're coming together for as a culture, as a country, as a community. We don't spend much time around our food, our storing, our processing, 
even the eating of food, takes a very second or third seat in the, in the majority of our lives. When you think about food preparation, even 100, 200 years ago, it took a lot longer. You weren't going to go to the cupboard and grab a canned bottle of spaghetti sauce. You had to use either fresh or dried tomatoes, and each of those takes a different set of timing to produce your end results along with the other ingredients that you'd want to add in. And you'd have to grow those tomatoes or dry those tomatoes. And what did that look like? It took a long time to feed ourselves. We used to enjoy that. Our cultures celebrated that in our holidays all across the globe. So many of our celebrations are still hugely based around the foods that we eat during those holiday or celebratory times. When communities began developing, they had to decide if they were going to be nomadic and hunter-gatherer based or more sedentary with some agrarian based lifestyles. And you still see some nomadic lifestyle out there, even in the urban setting. I myself have moved almost 60 times. That's a pretty nomadic lifestyle when it comes down to it. I'm only 45. When you break it down, there are years I moved more than one time in a year. That's a relatively nomadic lifestyle. And then there are those people out there that get to experience that at its truest intent in the wild with their animals and their patterns that match their seasons and the growing foods of their region, truly wandering the world, living off of the natural production of the planet. It would be so beautiful to understand what that would feel like. I try to think about it and I can't even really place myself in those shoes. We've removed ourselves so far from that. And I feel that we're all really lacking that sense of community. Some of us have it in our families. Some of us have it in our religious institutions. And some of us have it because we haven't moved around a lot. Maybe we have a, a pretty decent sense of community around us. But I think the majority of us feel that they're a little bit alone in the world. Maybe they have a friend over here. Maybe their close family member is still accessible to them, a mother, a daughter, cousin, but not this big family group. And less and less are people turning to churches for a community. So that leaves a lot of us with a big hole inside of our natural biological leanings. Some animals, we are animals, are sedentary, and some congregate. Humanity congregates. That's how we have survived. In fact, we've increased our congregation beyond our own species right? We bring other species into our communities. I read an article recently. I should have pulled this up. I didn't even think about it. I should have shared it with you. I may do that later. And it was all about the fact that they believed that Homo sapiens sapiens, the humans that we are today, in large part may have survived because they chose to create a symbiotic relationship with the canine species. It's during the ice ages, the most recent set of ice ages, when life got hard. 
Some areas were completely cut off from external sources of food and water because of the encroaching ice. And all of the land was encroached upon. So the resources retreated. They changed because of the changing climate. And it was harder for everything to survive. I can't remember if they said that was one of the five or six mass extinctions that our planet has recorded from what we can find, right? We state, we state these things as if, as if they're absolutes. And so often in my lifetime, I've seen these absolutes get turned on their head. So I wish that they talked about these concepts with a little bit more of just that type of language. It is a concept. It is a construct. It is a possibility with our ice core samples and um, core earth core samples, all of these different things, but they act as if they're set in stone and that hinders the actual paths of, um, let's see, what is it? Um, I'm trying to click the collegiate groupings these different industries, that's my world, right? I'm more in the physical labor world with all of my family out there in various uh, fields of industry, but the, um, oh, and I almost had it, the, uh, not the collegiate, there's a word. Anyway, the, um, I hate to say educated, because again, there's a misconception that people who have not sat down in a desk setting for at least four years are somehow uneducated. And that still goes person to person, as we all really know in our daily lives. In the circles that we're speaking of, there's conjecture back and forth constantly. And the going theory almost precludes any real discussion on the up and coming or more outlying theories, hypotheses, my friend Ethel and I got into a little bit of debate about that, and she's correct. A hypothesis is the word I should use way more often in my communications. Oh, no. I hope I can make it through, folks. You can probably hear in my voice that it's fading already. I was pretty sick yesterday, so bear with me. That's probably a little bit why I'm struggling with my words as well. Anyway, <clears throat> The going theory, meaning that has been at least to the best possibility tested or explored with corresponding data that seems to back it up in the archaeological era there. These uh, overriding theories preclude any discussion of alternative theories. And it's very unfortunate. We see that so much in our world. It's basically like the monopolies that we see in our corporate world and our corporate world. Oh my gosh, I'm going to struggle today. You guys, I do apologize. Giants of thought, these giants of industries keep everything else out. That's what we've seen in the agricultural world for so long. And again, it is a part of the lack of community. When we don't have a strong physical community, we're more susceptible to being led in one fashion or another by things like the media. When we have strong cultural and familial bonds and 
ideas and patterns of behavior, we have a different sort of a strength. So that is a part of what we are doing as Collectively Rewilding. We want to give the whole world, really, but anyone who wishes to join us, the opportunity to be a part of a community that doesn't dictate what community means. So often, even within our own families, there is this prevalence of following an accepted pattern. When we're rewilding, we don't know what the best answers are. And coming together, sharing all the different pieces that we are personally doing to bring the wild back into our world will give us such a broad knowledge of different styles of healing and what has worked for others and what hasn't worked for others that we can then apply in our own lives. Again, following those things that seem to fit the best with what we're working towards, what we can accomplish, what fits our patterns. It's very much like learning and retaining information. We're all so alike, and yet we're all so different. And if we can just find the beauty in all of that, that's how we come together and heal as a community while we work to heal the environment that we so badly damaged. When we damage the planet, we damage ourselves. And so if we've taken ourselves out of what is community, taken ourselves out of what is natural, and we've damaged so much of what is natural, I don't think it's any wonder that we have the rates of suicide and depression and apathy. I wonder sometimes what the children of today feel like when they know this world is in the state that it's in. I know as a child myself, they were already talking about doing experimental biodomes because they knew that we had done damage to the planet. And we're so far beyond those days. What is there for the youth to really hope for? They have been corralled in and had so much of our natural freedoms removed. They don't feel safe so often with the kidnapping scares that prevailed so heavily during the 80s. We do know that these things happen. There are horrible, horrible situations ongoing today that we know are out there. But we also know now that in the kidnapping scare tactics, it actually made our children more vulnerable to being preyed upon because there's not a large group of children just happily roaming every neighborhood, kind of looking out for each other simply because they're all around each other all the time. They would know if a stranger approached and violently grabbed one of their compatriots, their friends, and they would be able to say something. Now, if you see one, two, maybe four or five scattered over a neighborhood, there isn't this natural protection. And so there's so many elements to losing a community. We talked last week about the microbes in the soil and one of the radio shows along with me here on Freedomizer Radio, is the Barefoot is Legal radio show. 
And I support that so strongly. There is so much benefit to being in your bare feet. And I think we heard last week from Gerard Kenyatte Hay about having your skin exposed to the sunlight. And he sort of mentioned it a little bit, but he kind of moved on pretty quickly. Your entire skin breathes. And we're so used to covering up so much of it that we limit the properties of our skin. And so Benjamin Franklin was another huge proponent of burying your skin, both to the sunlight and to the air for at least an hour a day. Now, I like wearing clothes. I won't even try to pretend that I'm somebody that follows this practice. However, I have experienced what it feels like out in the depths of the wild where I knew I was completely by myself to be entirely exposed to the sunlight and the air and the wind. It's an amazing feeling. And I recommend everybody try it at least a few times in their life. And if you have the room and privacy, It would be wonderful to do that at least an hour every day. Drink your morning coffee or uh, maybe do some walking to just start waking up. They say that if you believe uh, your calcium or your pineal gland becomes calcified through our modern behaviors, one of the practices to remove that calcium is to walk in the sunlight, especially in the dawn in the sunrise and in the sunset of the eve that will help to break up that calcification of your pineal gland and if you could include opening your skin up to the elements in that way it will benefit your health it really is amazing and it really does feel very wonderful and the next time you go to put on your shoes if you already have them on like i do and most of us do think about the layout of your foot and really even picture in the drawings of a footprint. We have them in our own logos here in Collectively Rewilding. The balls of your feet are not as wide as your toes when they're naturally splayed out. So not only do you miss all of that interaction that we talked about last week with the chemicals in the soil being natural chemicals, the natural microbes with their natural chemical interactions with the soil and the air and the water and your skin, you also limit the ability of your feet to properly interact with supporting your body. You're cramping your toes in. The older we get, the more we start hearing people talk about things like corns and bunions and having to put spacers between their toes. This is something that I remember from my grandmother. She was already 65 when I was born. She lived to almost 101. And I just loved her so much and just listened to everything she had to say. And having been born in 1914, she has seen, she had seen so many massive shifts in cultural behavior. So many interesting stories. And yet she had these 
issues that I believe had she chose to had she chosen to pursue just a little bit of a different lifestyle because she worked in the garden she got her hands in the soil she went out into nature she had a beautiful community um all of these pieces that we lose more and more of as our civilizations age and yet her feet caused her constant problems Had she chosen to go barefoot on a more consistent basis, even at least just a few hours of the day when she was out in the garden, her health would have been even better. And she might not have fallen when she was 95 and had to have surgery and all of these things. And that's why she ended up not being able to live through her entire life in her own home without a caregiver. If she hadn't have fallen, more likely, like her own mother, she would have lived until she quietly passed away in whatever fashion that was, rather than having to do that after living with uh, uh, multiple caregivers in my family, and then finally deciding that she wanted to go to a retirement community, had she just chosen a different way of taking care of her feet. Because she was very aware of foot health, and she talked to me about it all of my life, you know, where cotton, breathable socks, white socks, make sure your feet are, uh, your shoes fit your feet properly, all of these things. Um, and if she would have understood what she was doing by never allowing her feet the freedom of simply being open to the environment, she probably would have lived her entire life on her own recognizance in her own home, which was how she wished that her life would have uh, proceeded, right? She was relatively happy, but having to have someone take care of her, she didn't enjoy it. And so the last five years of her life were less than her first 95 had been, and for reasons that they didn't need to be. And that is all a part of this. All of our modern practices that we consider normal are so far from normal. One of the shows that I really like to watch, Orphan Black, a character comes in off the street to ask a gentleman in the diner, does he have domesticated eggs? And the show's relatively older now. The gentleman didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And he was asking for free-range eggs. We don't even think about so often the processes that all of our world go through to be so readily available to us, whether you're talking about energy production or textiles, the food that we eat, the homes that we live in, the roads that we drive upon, whatever our specialized focus is, if we're in the healing arts, if we're in the educational arts, if we're in the industrial arts, our focus is pretty well solidified into the thought process that that culture is for each of us. And yet, all of that ties in together just as they're learning more and more within the healing arts that, yes, you do have specialists who know more about the heart, the brain, the lymphatic system. You also need to have a big picture or whole body view as well as lifestyle 
and be able to work with other fields within the medical industry. A heart or cardiac specialist needs to be able to speak to a lung or respiratory specialist. They correspond. As Misty Foles, who has uh, eye energy works and hosts the collectively healing space within collectively rewilding, she's constantly talking about how, yes, your heart and your lung health are directly affected by your gut health, the microbiome within your stomach, intestines, colon, in your sinuses, in your mouth, all of this is a part of the picture. And it just can't be stressed how this is a part of everything. If the industry fields don't work with the farming industry, so if you have your oil, your gas, your um, steel manufacturers, you know, these folks, and they pay absolutely no attention to the farming and agricultural industry, you end up in the sort of imbalance that we are today. So that's going forward, some of the things that we can think about as we try to restructure our lives, our communities, our environments, our patterns to become more sustainable. I believe that community is a big, big part of that. And Self-care, which goes back into whether or not you're wearing shoes every single waking moment, whether or not you interact with the soil outside, whether or not you go out into the more natural areas of our planet. All of these different pieces can help us to regain ourselves, to regain that hole inside of us that's missing because we naturally require interaction with a more natural system and community. A broader sense of humanity than just the individual, which is so intrinsically built into our Western philosophies, right? It would be a completely different community discussion if we were going into a more Eastern philosophical culture. They wouldn't necessarily have the same lack that we do within their community. I certainly wouldn't try to speak for those communities. I don't understand what it is to be part of such a, there are good and bad to both, right? It is so beautiful, the community environment of the Eastern philosophies. And then you see the more extreme and what here in the West, at least we consider negative consequences of it in the totalitarian, Chinese government. Some blending of all of that without the totalitarian, too much, right? I don't really see a lot of need for that anymore, maybe ever. Um, we've been taught to think that we need to look to someone outside of ourselves. We don't. We need to look to ourselves, to be our own leaders, to be our own motivators, to be our own guides and healers. Not that we don't want to interact with others at that level, but that we can reclaim so much of that within ourselves. And that is a part of healing our internal selves. And then 
going out into a community that is an intentional community, one that works towards a goal together, as my friend Gerard Kenyatta Hay is talking about, having moved out of the city mentality for the majority of us and going into more sparsely separate, uh, more sparsely arranged homesteading style environments where you still have your friends, your family, your neighbors, but they might be almost a mile away, more than a mile away at times because you're letting the environment become the environment again, moving away from lawns and concrete and skyscrapers. Yes, probably having those areas in certain cities There's a certain amount of industry that you simply can't do at a homesteading level. And I don't think that anybody wants to completely return back from utilizing energy, utilizing stronger materials in our constructions, and having the variety of textiles that we have available, being able to eat a banana at any time of the year. We take these things so for granted. And yet, as we're looking at moving towards a more sustainable future, a more sustainable environment, a more sustainable community, we have to look at all of that. Some of it probably can't be continued. However, if we really take a hard look at what we're doing and look to examples from the past, such as the ancient soil methods that we, I believe we talked about last week. This week I read one on, and I've read several about this. I've known about this for, oh, I don't know, probably not quite 10 years. They're looking into the physical components of the cements that our ancestors used because they have buildings that still stand and have been underwater, under the water of the sea, which is so corrosive, for thousands of years already, and yet they are so clearly visible as statues or a well or a burial site. And our concrete today only lasts about 50 to 100 years. Now, it is stronger than the concrete previously in its immediate ability to support weight. You could not take a Roman concrete and build a 50-foot skyscraper, even with the steel, there is uh, concrete components of those buildings. And the concrete from the Roman period, uh, the Chinese period of building the Wall of China, right, the Great Wall of China, that concrete can't hold the amount of weight. But it can hold up to the test of time so far beyond our concrete of today. So yes, looking back to the ancients and realizing that they had theirs together pretty well. They didn't live these simplistic lives that we sometimes, I think, try to envision and feel superior about. Yes, there are certainly modern marvels that we should be very proud of, and feel that we have contributed to the overall knowledge of the human race. But that should never take away from the marvels that were created by our ancestors. 
and the incorporation of the best of all of that and the innovation of the future is, in my personal opinion, our best way forward. Instead of having these, yes, simply almost totalitarian fields of thought dictating to us what are simply, in the end, theories, we should be very welcome to listening to alternative options, alternative theories, alternative suggestions and solutions, all of that, becoming more open to one another in our biological systems, realizing how broad they are in our cultures, becoming more and more open and inclusive and understanding of one another. That is a way that we can move forward with all of these systems all of the cultures throughout all of the time periods of recorded history have beauty and thought that can benefit us today in pursuing better patterns going forward. The Native Americans and the Celts are so very well known for interacting so closely and in a positive fashion with their natural environment. The Celts left very little of a record, but we're so blessed to have so much still available from so many of the tribes here with us today and stories from the past, as well as able to start piecing together where someone, uh, a tribe like the Anasazi, at one point in my childhood, I'm from the region that has the Anasazi, an ancient Native American tribe, And they thought they just disappeared, like they were wiped out by plague, perhaps, or famine. And as it turns out, they just slowly dispersed into the tribal nations that you see today in the southwest part of the United States. The Zuni and the Hopi, I believe, primarily the uh, Diné or Navajo, maybe a little bit. The Ute that are here, they uh, came in later. And so all of that all of those stories that they have that are still connected to their far distant past have pieces that we can learn from today. And I don't mean uh, cultural appropriation. I'm talking about an open discussion between all of our varying thought processes for all of these things that we're so concerned about together as a globe coming together and sharing their most beautiful insights as culture, as history, as people, moving forward to create a stronger, more resilient, healthy, and natural system. My friend Ethel and I, this conversation is probably going to include her quite a bit. We have discussions like this every week. Sometimes it feels like we talk about um these types of things more than our job that we we both work at. So it's a lot of fun and it is a part of it. The more we come together and have these conversations. Oh, and I uh, lost my train of thought. We were talking about babies and she brought up the fact that babies will just get along with other babies. Children will just get along with other children. There's no real angst beyond that. There's the occasional childish battles and sometimes children don't always get along 
but overall, children just congregate. They don't put up any of the boundaries that we do. And to take it a little bit further, the human and mammalian species of this planet have evolved as babies to be appealing, to be cute, to appear helpless and lovable, big eyes, soft fur, all of these things that help us to love them so much. Because still in the mammalian kingdom, you will see the eating their children. Well, to help babies survive, they developed these appealing characteristics. When a baby comes into the world, their very behavior as a natural being is to try to please everything they come into contact with. They're just trying to survive. So there is no animosity or anger or hatred. We naturally come into this world trying to fit in. All of these cultural constructs were created and generally created for us. So we can overcome all of that together. We can overcome the ill health of the chemical nature of our society. We can overcome the lack of community. We can overcome our separation from the natural world. And to do that, we can all still retain our individual selves. And that is biodiversity. It's all like they say, a big fishbowl, but more than that, they tied um, a new natural law, right? We have gravity, and I'm no scientist or mathematician, but there are five or six, I, I believe six universal laws. They've just added a sixth or seventh, whatever it is. And that is that in their very nature, all complex systems become ever more complex. Whether you're talking about the life that originated in the single-celled organisms, that was a set of, in the running theory of today, a set of molecules or atoms, pieces of elements that came together and started functioning together and then managed to begin to reproduce themselves somehow, right? Like it, it sounds just as magical as any of our creation stories. And that's why we shouldn't try to be so set in stone. But this new law says that as humans, as star systems, as um, chemical structures, right? Like the periodic table, um, they discussed how at a certain time period on the planet, there were only this number of elements. And they have a very stable and consistent base. And then they became a larger number of elements. It was a really interesting article. I'll make sure to um, put it up for you guys while I take our first break. So let's go ahead and do that. These articles are really interesting. The thought out there is opening up more and more as we're talking about here to include alternative possible theories for how things came to be as they are, whether you're talking the minerals or life systems or the universe. And on that note, let's go ahead and look into 
one of the featured artists for Collectively Rewilding, the featured content creators. I don't believe I played the ancient composting method for you last week, and it fits so well into what we're talking about right now, even though it is back to that soil idea. Let's go ahead and listen to this ancient composting method. What is going on, everyone? Welcome to another very exciting episode right here on the My Gardener channel. In today's episode, I'm going to be hopefully teaching you guys about a method of composting that is very simple, very convenient, and it's very effective. So I'm going to explain the rationale behind it, and it's called trench composting. Let's go. So as I said, the name of this method is called trench composting, and as the name would imply, we're going to be composting in a trench. Now, You've probably seen where people dig a trench and they put things like their food scraps and uh, you know, uh, stuff from their kitchen into a, into a trench and it breaks down, feeds their plants throughout the growing season. That is a method of trench composting and it works great. But this is at the end of the season when we have stuff like our, our squash plants here. You might have corn plants, a bunch of bulky material that you don't really know what to do with. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take out all this material. We're just going to chop it out and remove it from the garden. So it's done producing for the year. We got a lot of squash this year. It was a great year for, uh, for our zucchinis. And um, so we're gonna chop it all up, get it out of the garden. Once we've done that, we're gonna move on to the next step of just digging a trench. So in gardening and agriculture, there's a term called closed loop. Now in a closed loop agriculture or a closed loop garden, it basically means that all of the resources that it took to grow that crop are kept on site. If you have to go to the store and buy fertilizer or go to another farm and get cow manure or anything like that, that is an outside resource, outside of your loop. And you can think of your loop as just a little mini ecosystem. And so in our garden here, this garden, this bed, could be a closed loop or an open loop if I have to bring in more compost to amend the bed. Um, I also could uh, have our whole garden be open or closed, right? Um, do I have to make compost off-site? Um, do I have to bring fertilizer from, uh, you know, from the store or compost from a compost facility? Those are all resources I'm bringing back in to amend my soil to grow my plants. And by trench composting, you're actually closing that loop as much as possible because the amount of nutrients that these plants used to grow with was a ton of nutrients. And yes, we did harvest some fruits. We harvested some, we harvested some zucchinis and took them away from the bed. That is nutrients that will never be returned back to this bed. But these plants, if we took them off and we composted them in a compost pile, there's a certain percentage of that compost that would get wasted or lost through a process called leaching. So in a compost pile, because we don't have a basin underneath the compost pile to catch all of the what's called leachate, that is basically all of the nutrients and uh, good stuff that comes from a compost pile. Because we can't capture all that leachate, it's gonna just soak into the ground. And that leachate carries with it nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, trace minerals, and things like that. And that's why the perimeter of your compost pile grows so well. The grass is really green, the weeds just thrive, and that's all the nutrients that are being lost. Yes, you're gonna be capturing probably about 70, 75% of the available nutrients in your compost when you break it down, but the remaining 20, 25% is lost. And so um, e even if you were to take all of that squash, all the squash plants, compost them over here, you'd then have to have in a perfect case scenario, 100% um, of what's composted taken back over there 
to, to result in the same exact result as what you're going to be getting with trench composting, which is amazing. You're actually saving 100% of all of what would normally be lost here by doing it over there. All right, so next part of trench composting is, as the name would imply, we need a trench. So we're going to dig down about, I'd say, I don't know, 8, 10 inches or so. The, the depth doesn't really matter quite as much because by spring, all of this will be totally broken down anyways. The worms are going to have some good food throughout winter. And because we're digging down, you know, more than about four, six inches or so, the soil should stay mostly thawed. Now, obviously, depending on where you live, that's going to vary. I find that the permafrost, like the frozen layer of soil in our garden, typically extends no more than about six inches. So I like to go down about eight to 10 inches. And then that way it stays thawed so that, you know, worms and bacteria, even during the, the coldest weather, can still be working on something, even if it's slow. So I'm digging down about eight, 10 inches deep. And I'm just going along the length of the bed that I'm gonna fill up with my material. So as I was digging the trench, found this little buddy. These are the things that are gonna be doing all the work for you. These worms are gonna be doing all the composting of all this material, as well as other soil bacteria and microbes and fungi and all that other good stuff. They're gonna be breaking down this material right here in the raised bed. So the next thing you wanna do is make it small for them. They don't want all this material to be nice and big and chunky and bulky. They want it smaller. The more surface area you have, the smaller it is, the faster they're gonna be able to break it down. So we're just gonna take it, we're going to beat it up a little bit. Take out your aggression on the world. Or aggression for the world, I should say. <laughs> All right, so once you are totally out of breath and absolutely gassed, it's also like 85 degrees out, so bear with me. But once you get it all chopped up, we're going to take all this material and load it into the trench. So I know what you're probably thinking. Luke, wait, you're not gonna throw all that in the garden, right? That squash had powdery mildew. And if you thought it had powdery mildew, you'd be correct. But why am I still throwing it in the garden? Well, because I don't really care. The reason why is because powdery mildew is a soil-borne fungus, just like early blight, late blight is for things like tomatoes. I'm not worried about it because it's a soil-borne fungus. It comes from the soil anyways, meaning that it came from the soil, so I'm just returning it back to the soil. And I'm not too worried about it because in healthy soil, you're going to have a balance between good bugs, bad bugs, good fungi, bad fungi, and things like that. So I'm not too worried about it at all about it because I know that it's going to balance out in the end. And chances are it was already there to begin with. So it's not like anything's really changing. So the final thing we have to do is just cover it up. This is crazy how easy this is because I didn't need a wheelbarrow. I didn't need to do anything. I just pulled it off, chopped it up, threw it back in, and it's done. So now all of those nutrients that were taken from the soil that was put into those plants, all the leaves, the roots, the stems, everything like that, anything, you know, flowers, immature fruit, anything like that that didn't get harvested and taken out of the garden, all right, we'll it's all going to get returned back. Now, back. will I have a complete closed loop system? No, I won't because I did harvest things like zucchini, so those are in my belly. And because of that, I am going to have to return some nutrients back to the garden, but I'm, have to, I'm going to have to return far less than I would have to had I just taken all of this and thrown it out at the road or composted it somewhere else and used the compost in another bed, right? Also, what I'm returning to this bed is soil, right? I'm re-amending this garden with more soil so that I don't have to fill up with as much compost in the spring. And that 
is a lot of work. So it also saves a ton of work as well. And the final thing is it's feeding those beneficial, uh, those beneficial insects and beneficial bacteria in our garden right in the bed where I want them. So it's keeping them alive, giving them some food for them to, uh, to feed on throughout winter. So there's a lot of benefits to this. I highly recommend trying it. It is awesome and uh, you really can't go wrong. So uh, try this with anything as well. I know you're probably gonna be asking, is there something I shouldn't do this with? Not really. Do it with corn, do it with squash, do it with tomatoes, do it with absolutely anything that's a pain in the butt to have to carry over and compost. Now, would I do this with things like grass clippings? Nah, I really wouldn't. I would definitely compost those. Would I do it with things like mulched up leaves? I might, I might consider, but those are also just as good in a compost pile because they could break down a lot faster when blended up with things like grass clippings and other uh, high nitrogen containing ingredients. So I may or may not do that uh, in this bed, but it's a wonderful composting method, one that I just wanted to share with you guys. So hopefully you found it enjoyable. Hopefully you all learned something new. If you did, make sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll catch you all on the next episode. All right, grow bigger. Take care. Bye. All right. I really do like M.I. Gardner's natural style. He doesn't feel that he has to micromanage his garden. He lets more natural processes play into the gardening that he does. And so the article that I read about the new law of nature is uh, missing law of nature explains the evolution of everything that exists in the universe. Uh, perhaps I'll put up a place in Collectively Rewilding where we talk about some of these concepts that don't always have to do with gardening or things of that nature. The other about canines is dogs as pets, how dogs may have helped Homo sapiens triumph over Neanderthals. And the final one that we talked about was something I got off of MSN. Let me see. I don't use it as often. Let me see if I can find it in my history for you. How are ancient Roman and Maya buildings still standing? Scientists are unlocking their secrets. They were all just tremendous articles, and I recommend them to anyone to get this overall concept. They're really starting to tie different things together. Again, as I talked about before, with all this interconnectedness that is really out there. So another piece of building community is how do we build a community if we're lacking that to start with? Having moved so many times, I've had to establish myself in some sort of a community over and over and over again. There is no right or wrong way to do it. It's all again about being authentically yourself and also recognizing the overall patterns of any system of culture that we're belonging to. We may not feel community. Many others in our physical region may not feel community. There is still a community of organisms called Homo sapiens living in this geographical region. How do you go from being individuals separated to individuals connected? One of the things, if you would like to build a community that you have to be willing to do, is put yourself out there. My husband is a 
living example of this right now, he doesn't enjoy making a new community. He tends to bring his community with them when he moves. Several of his friends end up moving where he is or he's ended up moving where they were over the last 15 years. However, he wanted to establish healthier patterns for himself. So he really enjoys disc golf. He just threw himself into a very insular community here in the Salt Lake Valley area. Utah as a state is a relatively insular culture. I experienced it in Wyoming as well, whereas Idaho, Nevada, Colorado, California, Arizona, I believe those are the other states that I've lived in, they had a more diverse community, uh, more inclusive of outsiders, whether it was the refugees that I was able to get to interact with in California, or the constant moving that happens in Southwest Colorado, there was a variety of influx and outflux for all of those communities. Utah and Wyoming are more insular. People tend to stay here and less come into this area, but Utah has been undergoing a shift in that attitude since they hosted the Olympics. It's still very insular. Slowly, more and more, people such as my husband are working into these communities. And so when he approached the disc golf community, he was an outsider. He felt it, they felt it, and he just kept going, talking to people, talking about disc golf, talking about his job. Men so often identify with their careers, right? And slowly, he's built a huge network in the disc golf community to the point that he started a nonprofit and they've formed a board and have, oh, I don't know, probably close to 50 members. They have members who just join them for the occasional disc golf round and members that consistently show up for every activity and participate in some of the decision-making even though they're not a board. It's a very active community. It took him a good two years to really start being a part of that community. You just have to keep going, keep showing up, keep having a little bit of something to say. You don't have to hold the spotlight the entire time, but you want to become a part of what you're doing, and that requires some engagement. There are many people in a community that are more quiet, and that is certainly a new role that you can fulfill. However, in order to become a part of a community to begin with, we generally have to put out some sort of activity. That can look like so many different things. My husband has this disc golf. I generally end up finding a community within where I work, as he does. I bring that community a little bit more into my life through the online and physical world. And for him, beginning to do that. Many people, as we've talked about, go to a religious institution. That is a form of community. One of the pieces that I'm really trying to work on here in Utah is developing beyond even a community garden. I'm hoping to 
begin a discussion here in Utah about going towards the food forest level, more like Oregon and Washington, from my understanding. I've never even gotten to visit that part of the country. So it's all that online conjecture that we hear. For instance, I heard before I lived in Utah that Utah was providing single bedroom homes, apartments to homeless, and that it was saving them money with their infrastructure and their medical and so and so on. That was never a reality. I have not found any correlation to that when I'm on the ground here in the Salt Lake Valley. There are definitely efforts to help those that are homeless, help those that don't have the means to pay for adequate shelter, all of these pieces. And one of those is a community garden. There are several community gardens attached to the Wasatch Community Gardens, and those that are more towards the most urban areas of Salt Lake Valley in Salt Lake City itself and a couple right outside of that, the majority of the produce is geared towards the homeless community. And community gardens, it's something we talked about last week, can be a huge focal point for a community. They can really bring your community together. So I encourage anybody that would like to build a community to consider a community garden. There's work that goes involved into all of that. You have to find the land, work it out with the landowner. Many times you have to work it out with your city or town, with going to your city or town council. You can many times, <clears throat> excuse me, get your town, city, or even county involved, and they may provide some of the funding or materials for that community garden. Another way to get funding for a community garden is to approach local businesses, even those such as Walmart. Whether they're mom and pop or a corporate level business, many times those businesses will donate to a community effort like that. There are grants out there that will help establish a community garden. All of that is a way to begin to build community where you are. Other people do things like book clubs, there are gaming groups. I don't know that they would call it a club, right? I'm not a gamer that you can join. There are hunting clubs. There's golf. There's disc golf, as my husband mentioned, bowling leagues. There are still usually city and town softball and basketball, volleyball leagues that you can join. And one of the big pieces of building community generally involving yourself first in the community that already is, or if you want to approach an individual and you're wanting to work towards a goal, they recommend, they being the experts for uh, group interaction, things of this nature, right? They recommend that you do something they want to do first. Work towards the cause that they're already uh, establishing. So I'm going to work with the Wasash Gardens. I've already worked with the Jordan River Initiative. Not a lot, but I'm building that base to keep integrating myself into that natural and agricultural world here in this community that I find myself in. These are all ways to develop community. You can volunteer. That's your physical world. How also do you build a community online? Many times we have gone so specialized inside ourselves, it's hard to find a like-minded individual right where we are. Even if they're there, we might not come across them. So 
how would one build an online community? It's essentially the same basic process. Put yourself out there. What are you interested in? Are you interested in gardening? Are you interested in hiking? My cousin Lisa that we talked about that was um, the honored individual for our last week's episode was a rock hounder. She was so passionate and so knowledgeable about the types of rocks and minerals and where to go to find them. And she'd plan these big, beautiful trips so that she could hit up several hot spots for rock hounding in our area here in the Four Corners. Amazing pieces that she found. Oh, so beautiful. And there are people that are able to go out there and do that with herbs and people that like to climb those giant rocks, right? There are so many ways to start finding a group of individuals that like to do what you do. So you can start with social media. That's generally the simplest fashion. Creating a Facebook page, a Facebook group. I really like Mighty Networks. It is a paid social media platform, but they actually care about their customers, their community, as they call it. Mighty Networks is centered on building communities, individual network. They actually strive to work with their customers to build an ever better and ever better product. So that's where we have collectively rewilding. And I gain no money. I have no affiliation with Mighty Networks. I simply think they have an exemplary, just an astounding product. I can't say enough about how easy it is to use and how much opportunity there is for every individual to make it their own. So when we have new members who are coming into Collectively Rewilding, they do have to learn a new social media platform. Each individual network is a little different. Even if they belong to other networks on the Mighty Network social media platform, they would have to learn how Collectively Rewilding works. But it's beautifully organized, and it's so much fun to set up. I am encouraging anyone who has any sort of natural endeavor that you feel you want to share and teach other people about to please come join Collectively Rewilding and find out how simple it is to put that material that maybe not a lot of other people do. There's so much to reclaim in the rewilding world. It's like my friend Melvin Cordell that I mentioned last week who hand makes bricks. That's a lost art almost is a hand crafted item. Yet he's out there able to do that and able to teach people about the compositions of the soil that you need in order to make a lasting brick, about the other materials that are added into that, whether you're adding sand or uh, hay, I believe is another common additive. This all depends on the soil components where you live, where you're getting your soil when you're building your bricks. And it's something that not very many of us ever spend any time thinking about. I've spent a little bit of time here or there, read about it in a textbook, read about it in an article, maybe in a novel or something along those lines. But I would never have 
gone out and attempted it on my own until I met Melvin. And now I'm really interested in this process. And I would love to get hands-on with it and learn how to make a brick by hand, a paving stone, a cinder block, right? All of these things were at one point much more manually created, manufactured, manufactured, right? Really interesting. All of that can be incorporated into building a community online or in the physical world. And what Collectively Rewilding is, as a community, is to foster and encourage and grow each of those individuals out there that want to teach others what they know about their part of the wild world. It's just so fascinating to me. I love listening when others get passionate about what they do, when Misty Folds gets intense about all of the amazing knowledge she has about reestablishing a healthy gut biome, when Rain Grant does one of her beautiful pieces on gourmet cooking with wild foraged mushrooms. It's so comforting. It's like she brings you into her own kitchen and hangs out with you and one of her friends. All of these different pieces are so individually beautiful. And the goal behind them is all so similar. That's where we explore our differences and celebrate our similarities, right? All right. Let's go ahead and read the article about canine companions. Dogs as pets. How dogs may have helped Homo sapiens triumph over Neanderthals. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our four-legged friends may have played a key role in our early survival, but so may the whites of our eyes. Oh goodness, I don't remember reading anything about that. Oh, it's not going to let me read it. Oh yes, hold on. I apologize, everyone. I have to register my email. Okay. Shakespeare invented many new English words, over 1,500 in fact. Epileptic is one, puking is another, alligator, skim milk, and obscene are a few more. In act number three, let me make sure this is the right article. It is. Okay, I must have skipped through all of this. In act number three of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon says to Puck, then crush this herb into Lysander's eye, whose liquor hath this virtuous property, to take from thence all error within his might, and make his eyeballs roll with wanted sight. <clears throat> I am so sorry. Excuse me, folks. Being sick right before this was not the best timing. Before this speech, before this speech there was I, E-I-E, excuse me, E-Y-E, and there were balls, B-A-L-L-S, but no one had thought to put them together. And that, it turns out, is a pretty big deal. Why? Well, if you've ever wondered why your eyeballs are so white, actually, the technical term for the white around the iris is the sclera, it turns out you've contemplated something very basic about what makes us who we are. 
We're the only primate with a white sclerae, not to mention eyelids that allow our eyes to be clearly visible. Compared with the dark sclerae, the dark surrounding skin and droopy eyelids of chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, and orangutans, our eyes render us open books. Whether our heads lean left or forward, bob incessantly, or stay as still as a church mouse, it's easy to follow our gaze. This means that we can communicate better by signaling our intentions and in allowing us to understand each other better, to read each other with ever-increasing accuracy, our white eyeballs played a part in making us human. If a white sclera provided an advantage in communication, a new theory now claims that our whites were not aimed exclusively at ourselves. Before we come to that though, we need to consider a different question. How is it that we, modern humans, homo sapiens, survived and populated the planet, whereas Neanderthal man, homo neanderthalensis, disappeared? After all, the Neanderthals had been successfully living in what is today Europe and parts of Western and Central Asia for well over 250,000 years before we showed up, walking out of Africa just 70,000 years ago. They made tools and created art, built homes with animal bones, even had a language. As archaeological and paleontological evidence suggests, the two human species lived side by side in Europe and the Middle East for about 10,000 years, between 45,000 and 35,000 years ago. But then, rather suddenly, the Neanderthals began to dwindle. Whether or not there was a small amount of interbreeding between the two groups, a matter that continues to be debated, more recently than 25,000 years ago, no Neanderthals remained. What happened? The answer is that nobody really knows. Sudden climate changes that, affect our, er, that affected our stocky, large-headed cousins more than us, this is one hypothesis that's been offered to solve the mystery. Two volcanic super eruptions around 40,000 years ago is another. And violent extinction at our own hands is, albeit not terribly com complementary to ourselves, a third. But now a new hypothesis has appeared, one that is not perhaps so damning as much as it makes us look rather differently at our canine companions. According to this theory, the reason we humans made it through the Paleolithic era, whereas Neanderthals whimpered and withered, is that we domesticated dolls. Dogs, excuse me. Dogs are furry and cute, you might say, fun to play with, and really the sweetest little creatures. What kind of an advantage could they have possibly given us over the well-adapted, sturdier Neanderthal? And I have to say that anyone who asks that question probably did grow up in the country. Animals are such a huge advantage, whether you're talking transport from the horse and the oxen, or you're talking food or uh, protection, right? A chicken and a dog. These things are far beyond our furry friends. They are absolutely an advantage, just as the ant has domesticated I can't remember, it's some sort of aphid, I believe. They've domesticated another form of insect and it benefits both species. It's another form of symbiotic relationship, simply not one that we see much, at least, or haven't seen yet much beyond our own species. Paleolithic dogs weighed on average 32 kilograms and had a, a shoulder height of at least 60 centimeters. These were beasts 
comparable to today's German shepherds, not minuscule Pomeranians held on laps by petite models on the Champs-Élysées. At the sites where the canines' remains were found, in latter-day Siberia and the Czech Republic, an abundance of mammoth bones were also found. If the modern Blackfeet and Hidasta Indians of the American West, who use dogs as beasts of burden to lug their loads, are an example, it may well be the case that Paleolithic dogs helped carry mammoth meat from the kill sites back to camp. If they did, they would have saved humans a lot of energy, rendering each kill a greater net gain in food. More food would mean better fed mothers with more milk to service more babies, which would mean population growth. A recent paper in the Science Journal by Paul Millar, Paul Millars, and Jennifer C. French, analyzing 164 archaeological sites of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, shows that in the period of overlap, we humans overwhelmed our cousins in sheer numbers, outbreeding them as much as 10 to 1. Could dogs lugging meat have been responsible? And I want to take it a little bit further than that. I believe that they probably could have been hunting companions. They're certainly herding, herding companion, uh, companions now, helping with cattle and sheep and things of this nature. They can run so much further, so much longer, so much faster than we can. I don't know why you would not have also possibly incorporated canine companions into the actual hunting process itself. All hypotheses about the deep past necessarily have to be tentative. There is a large element of storytelling just by dint of the metier, I'm not sure. Alas, great swaths of our history will remain forever beyond our reach. But just so stories, a la Rudyard Kipling, can be convincing, which is why readers have begun looking more closely at other ways dogs could have been helpful to humans. Investigating the closest thing we have today to a mammoth hunt, a pair of researchers from the Finnish Game and Fisheries Institute compared the results of hunting moose with and without dogs, and found that using large Norwegian elk hounds or Finnish spitzes increased the average carcass weight per hunter by 56%. So again, I believe they're correlating that to transporting the food, right? A further study of the Mayenga and Mosquito peoples of Nicaragua showed that 85% of the mammals caught in hunts involved the use of dogs, crucial for encountering game in the first place. The hunters were six times more likely to farm, find armadillos using dogs and nine times more likely to find a gaudis, large and apparently very tasty rats. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. A gaudis, I think, are a style of pig, right? Dogs also save humans a lot of times or a lot of time, a recent study of the Bofi and Aka forest hunters of the Central African Republic showed that porcupine hunts were 50 per seven, uh, 50 per seven cents, oh my gosh, you guys, 50 per seven cents faster and pouched rat hunts 41% faster when dogs were on the trail. These dogs were not cuddled or play with, but strictly used for hunting. The very idea that they should be thought of as pets or companions would be considered a joke and absurd. Until recently, the domestication of dogs was thought to have occurred about 17,000 years ago, well after the last Neanderthal had perished. But archaeological finds in Belgium and elsewhere suggest that wild wolves may have been selectively bred by humans beginning as far back as twice that number of years. So that would put it at, uh, what, 38,000? 
34,000, there we go, 34,000 years ago. This would more or less coincide with the human Neanderthal overlap, and yet all dog bones, dog bones found so far have been exclusively in Homo sapiens sites. In one of these, at Gravitian Pedmosi in the Czech Republic, I'm sure I brutalized that, a complete skull of a dog was found with a large bone inserted between its jaw and cranium, suggesting that perhaps valued hunting dogs were honored and maybe even buried with ritual. Which brings us back to Shakespeare and eyeballs. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Lysander falls in love with Hermia, but cannot marry her because her father wants her to wed Demetrius. Running away on a forest path together, the lovers and Demetrius encounter the mischievous elf Puck, who applies a magic ointment to the eyes of the two men, making them both fall in love with the second woman, Helena. Poor Hermia is dismayed, but not all is lost. Puck applies the ointment again, this time only to Lysander, whose love for Hermia is magically restored. Since Demetrius remains in love with Helena, the two couples can live happily ever after, all's well that ends well. The course of true love never did run smooth. Lysander comforts his beloved, expressing the theme of the play. But the, another way to look at it is that eyes matter. Well, then, is the connection between humans and Neanderthal, uh, Neanderthals, eyeballs, and dogs? In a recent article, an American scientist, our, uh, anthropologist Pat Shipman, tenders a guess. In the years that the great British primatologist Jane Goodall lived at Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania, she observed two male monkeys with a mutation. Their sclera were white. A third female dis, uh, developed white sclera in old age, but the mutation didn't spread and died with the monkeys. Why? Shipman suggests that the answer might have to do with the fact that while chimps do hunt, meat makes up only 2% of their diet. Paleolithic humans, on the other hand, depended on game to a much greater extent, closer to 30%. Being able to read a gaze is of great help in communicating during a silent hunt. Clear sclera would stand to benefit early humans handsomely, but carry less advantage for chimpanzees. And the wider our sclera, the better, all, the better overall cooperators we could become. If white eyeballs played a role in turning us into the uber-cooperative species that we are, they may also explain why dogs provided such an advantage for dogs are notoriously good at following eyes, as good, in fact, as human infants. When you move your head, but keep your, eye, uh, but keep your eyeballs still, dogs, unlike monkeys, are not fools. That we, rather than Neanderthals, should have domesticated dogs may provide a new and fascinating piece for solving the puzzle of their disappearance and our triumph. And of course, this might be part of the explanation of our white eyeballs. Man's best friend, indeed, but also his maker. Still, notice how many assumptions go into this theory. One, that, dog make, that dogs make hunts more efficient because they take cues from human gazes. Two, that human sclera were not white or as white before the domestication of dogs. Three, that selection pressures for co-evolution of white sclera and dog hunting were strong enough compared to selection pressures for white sclera to aid communication in humans alone. Four, that a greater mutation rate for white sclera in humans allowed our early ancestors and not Neanderthals to put especially tame wolves or incipient dogs on the hunt. The canine bones found in early archaeological sites belonged to hunting dogs. And six, that we did, in fact, domesticate dogs as early as 40,000 years ago. The list goes on and on. Not one of these assumptions is proven. 
At the moment, then, this is nothing more than, if you like, a Midsummer's Night, a Midsummer Night's Dream. So hold your applause and keep your eyes open for new evidence. The course of finding truth, after all, as Shakespeare and his heroine Hermia knew all too well, never did run smooth. Wow, you know that's that's that was a bit of a stretch. Um, I must have just read the headline and a little bit of the body of the paragraph that I was the most interested in. It has some plausibility, I suppose. I think that in the end, the dog survival comparison is probably a lot more realistic, whether it involved the competition between Neanderthals in any way at all. It could have been later in our path. I still think that it is an advantage to our continued now domination of the species of this planet. All of our domestications of animals. Right. Think about the sort of power domesticating an elephant provides, how much they can pull. Now, they would, of course, not help in the hunt. And I was thinking about it while I was reading the article. There are, of course, better examples of having dogs increase the proficiency of the hunt. You know, you think of the English dog hunts, all of the fox hunting, and dachshunds were bred because they could get through the tunnels of certain creatures that were desired. So absolutely, it did increase the viability of hunting patterns, the variability of hunting patterns. Cats, they keep out our infestations of rodents, um, the bubonic plague. When the European countries began to vilify cats and witchcraft and all of this and decimated their feline populations, it helped the rats to invade their areas and bring the fleas that brought the bubonic plague. So our symbiotic relationships with all of these domesticated animals definitely furthers our species. And I just thought it was very interesting. And again, a part of our community. Many of those who, uh, many of those of us who feel isolated have some sort of animal companion. Again, mentally and emotionally helping that individual to survive. Really interesting thought process. All right. I apologize if you can hear that. Something from my door. It's just something about the air pressure in our house. There's nothing I can do to make it stop. All right. And then here is the missing law of nature, explains the evolution of everything that exists in the universe. A multidisciplinary team of scientists and philosophers have unveiled what they term a missing law of nature. This revolutionary concept broadens the scope of evolution, traditionally understood in the context of biological life. The authors assert that evolution is a fundamental process that extends to all complex systems in the universe, from celestial bodies to atomic structures. Universal law of nature for complex systems. The core proposition of the research is the recognition of evolution as the ubiquitous phenomenon, not combined merely to biological entities, but applicable to a vast array of complex systems in the natural world. The authors introduced the law of increasing functional information, a principle stating that any system, living or non-living, will evolve of its various configurations, undergo, will evolve if its various configurations undergo a process of selection based on functionality. 
defining characteristics of evolving systems. The team identifies three primary characteristics common to these complex evolving systems. Multiplicity of components. These systems compromise numerous components, atoms, molecules, cells, and more, which can assemble in myriad ways. Number two, diversity of arrangements. Natural processes lead to the formation of countless arrangements from these components. And number three, selection for function. Among the vast diversity of configurations, only a few survive and persist embodying a process akin to natural selection, somewhat like what we talked about in the last article with the chimpanzees that had the mutation in their eyes to have white sclera. It didn't end up attracting them a broader diversity of mates so that they spread that gene further. It died out with that individual animal. The common thread linking these systems is the continuous evolution happening when a novel arrangement enhances function, irrespective of the system's nature. Key to evolution's universality. Dr. Michael L. Wong, the, first, the study's first author from the Carnegie Institution for Science, emphasizes selection for function as the pivotal element of this universal law of nature. The research built upon, built upon Darwin's foundational work, where function equated primarily with survival traits advantageous for reproduction. However, the new law proposes a more expansive view, categorizing function into three distinct kinds. One, stability, basic survival of systems through stable configurations of their components. Two, dynamic persistence, selection of systems capable of sustaining energy flows or other processes. And three, novelty, the emergence of new, often surprising characteristics or behaviors through continuous explorations of, or exploration of new configurations. This broader definition sees function not just as a means of survival, but as any attribute that contributes to a system's ongoing existence, diversification, and complexity. Tracing Evolution's Footprints Across Nature. The paper illustrates this theory using vivid examples from both biological and non-biological contexts. Life on Earth demonstrates an astounding journey of evolutionary novelties. These range from the advent of photosynthesis to the development of multicellular organisms and complex behaviors like locomotion, not like a train, but like the ability for an organism to move, and cognition. However, the concept of evolution extends beyond organic life. For instance, the mineral kingdom exhibits its evolutionary pathway, where simple, stable mineral configurations have, over time, given rise to new generations of minerals essential for life's genesis and sustenance. And so this is where I let the authors of this paper talk to you about what they're talking about within these different breakdowns the categorization of function as stability, dynamic persistence, and novelty, and the three primary characteristics being multiplicity of components, diversity of arrangements, and selection for function. Earth's mineral diversity has explosively expanded from a mere 20 to nearly 6,000 known types today, 
this diversity was driven by increasingly complex physical, chemical, and biological interactions over billions of years. This was new knowledge to me. It absolutely makes sense, of course, but I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time in the overall study of rocks and minerals and all of these different chemical compilations of organic materials, right? That's Misty Folds and my rock hounding cousin Lisa over there. They could have broken some of that down a lot better than I can. And this was an entirely new concept to me, as maybe it is for many of you. Earth's mineral diversity has explosively expanded. Oh, we did that. In the cosmic arena, stars represent another evolutionary marvel. Initially composed of fundamental elements like hydrogen and helium, successive generations of stars have forged a plethora of heavier elements, contributing to the universe's chemical diversity and complexity. Darwinian theory, a special case. The research boldly situates Darwinian evolution as a special instance within this expansive natural phenomenon. Charles Darwin eloquently articulated the way plants and animals evolve by natural selection, explains co-author Robert M. Hazen of Carnegie Science. We contend that Darwinian theory is just a very special, very important case within a far larger natural phenomenon. This universal law underscores that the principles driving the diversity on life, of life on Earth apply equally to inanimate systems offering a profound new understanding of evolutionary dynamics. Illuminating the law of nature. The study's uniqueness also lies in its collaborative spirit, involving philosophers of science, astrobiologists, a data scientist, a mineralogist, and a theoretical physicist, getting back to that idea that we started this conversation around, that we are all interacting elements within so many different types of complex systems, even as each of us individually, simply as one component of the mammalian kingdom. It's such a complex and intricate dynamic that we actually exist in. And when these fields of study and these fields of industry, as we talked about, begin to come more and more together as medical comes together with some of the ancient teachings about the human body. All of this, we are learning so much more about what it really means to be alive, to be a system, to be a biological community. Dr. Wong encapsulates the essence of their finding in this new paper, we consider evolution in the broadest sense, change over time, which subsumes Darwinian evolution based upon the particulars of descent with modification. By recognizing the universal propensity for complex systems to generate novelty, stability, and dynamic persistence, the research redefines evolution as a principle not exclusive to life, but as an inherent characteristic of our ever-evolving universe. And so again, I can't really even try to summarize that. This is something so new to me in concept, and it touches on things that I'm not an expert in, 
but it does underlie my own thought processes about those things that I'm familiar with. And I also think that it's very interesting, especially when you include the thoughts about how we now understand that everything emits a certain uh, frequency of megahertz, a rock, a person, the stars. There is so much out there that we don't understand about how we interact. The fungi that we have relatively recently discovered in the soils that is such a big part of the communication of a natural biome, all of this shows more and more how closely and interrelated everything really is. Simply tremendous thought to take us further in an appreciation and compassion and also awareness of how dependent we are on all of these intricacies. Very, very wonderful thoughts there. All right. Let's go ahead and go into ethical dyeing. I don't believe last week we listened to wildcraft dyeing at all. Dyeing as D-Y-E-I-N-G, to dye fabric, to dye a million things. We dye plastics. We dye all of these things. Wildcraft dyeing is all focused on natural textile dyes that are foraged from the wild. They incorporate a lot of natural weaving techniques into their textile manufacturing, going around the world, working with various communities to help understand their biological systems, they're all incorporated into her textile practices. Simply an amazing woman over there spreading some fabulous knowledge. Let's listen to Wildcraft Dyeing on Ethical Dyeing Practices. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of History Science Paper. My name is Zoe McDonald. I'm a wildlife biologist, and today I am standing on the banks of the beautiful and mighty Fraser River in British Columbia to talk to you about a few different topics. I keep getting questions about this, so let's dive in. So the first topic I want to cover today is should you be dying with things that are poisonous? Should you die with them and then knit with them and give them away as gifts? Is it safe to knit a baby blanket with them? Let's talk about things that are poisonous. I think the first thing that's important is that natural dyeing has a context in the modern age. And that context is the textile apparel industry. When it comes to commercially dyed yarn, commercially dyed fabric, it's the top fifth industrial source of industrial pollution in the world. It's incredibly toxic. Um, and is responsible for 10% of all carbon dioxide emissions on the planet, which is more than every commercial flight combined in a year. It's a huge source of pollution. It's a huge source 
of contamination. And there are rivers in China and Bangladesh that are inky black um, next to where people live and children play um, because of the commercial dyes that are used. So just the fact that you're dyeing with natural dyes is a huge step in the right direction, especially if you're foraging for your own. Um, I think the carbon footprint is very small. But on to things that are poisonous and toxic. I, I didn't use the term toxic at first because, you know, situations or people or relationships can all be toxic. So what does toxic even mean anymore? I don't know. Um, but when things that are poisonous, one thing to keep in mind is that, and now this is something that I wouldn't necessarily share with, with children because I want them to be really safe around fungi if we're out on a hike or whatever, but it's ingesting poisonous mushrooms that is a problem. You can actually pick up and hold a poisonous mushroom. You should wash your hands afterwards. But when you die, it seems to be that when you're dying with materials that are inedible or have components that might harm you, dying with them seems to be that the pigments, the molecules that bind to the fiber, um, those pigments stay and everything else gets washed. Now, if you're dying, you should definitely rinse till, till the water is clear. But I'm dying with mushrooms. Um, I usually leave the fiber, the, the it in the dye bath overnight. Like, I sort of let it, after I've heated it for an hour, I let it leave it overnight. And that seems to really help set the color. Um, but then I'm going to rinse it. So I definitely think you should rinse really well. I don't think it's a major issue um, in terms of toxins or things that are poisonous. Having said that, not a lot of work's been done. So, you know, maybe for the most, you know, we've got a few of the polypore mushrooms that give spectacular purples, um, but are known to be poisonous. Maybe not the best thing for baby blanket if babies are sucking on them. But I think in general, it'll it'll be good. And if and if you really really want to stick to things that are edible, you can. You know, there's some dye mushrooms. Um, I have some videos on my channel. Lobster mushrooms, blue chanterelles which have huge medicinal properties, including shrinking stomach cancers and um, combating Alzheimer's. Um, so that's definitely what I would say is, is it's okay to die with them. And again, you want to keep separate equipment for dying. As, as I say, I try to say in all the videos, keep separate dye equipment to cooking. Second topic I want to cover today is ethical wildcrafting. What are some guidelines you can use to make sure that the foraging that you do isn't harmful for the environment um, and is responsible. When I started out being interested in conservation and being interested in the environment, um, I had a very black and white view. There were parks, which were good, and then there were not parks or, you know, ethnic land uses, and they were not as good. Um, and I ended up doing um, a master's in conservation biology in Africa, and that helped me understand that a lot of the history of parks is actually pretty racist. Um, it often involves people sitting around a table, delineating the borders, and then sending in trucks or other vehicles to move often indigenous people out of it. And that's certainly the case uh, here in Vancouver with Stanley Park, which is our sort of the equivalent of Central Park in, in New York. Um, where three communities, indigenous communities, were moved out. Um, and it's the same, we see the same pattern everywhere. So um, a more nuanced view, a more modern view is, of course, you know, I'm not ripping on parks. Parks are critical for biodiversity conservation. But 
there's also a more modern concept of conservancies, the idea of conserving wild spaces while still allowing for foraging, for hunting, for traditional land uses. Um, and some of these things actually maintain, if not improve, biodiversity. And we see that there's a really famous TED Talk that talks about um, some of these parks in the southern United States and how there's been with the loss of buffalo, there's been a loss of biodiversity and actually how running cattle through them could actually increase biodiversity by the layers of dung, you know, having seeds and maintaining mm -hmm the moisture in the soil and, and some of these things. So land use isn't always black and white, um, and it's the same with foraging. And I think a great book, if this is a topic you're interested in, is Braided Sweetgrass. It's a fabulous book. I absolutely love it. Um, and it talks about some of the, the studies that the author, who is both a botanist and indigenous, um, did uh, in terms of foraging and how that can actually improve um, what we call beta biodiversity and nuance. Um, when it comes to foraging in your area, you know, you're going to need to do the legwork in terms of where you can forage and where you can't forage. Um, if it's on private land, you need to ask permission. Um, for my job, I have certifications that I don't want to ever risk, so I don't forage in parks. I often do my, I'll just do my photography and then I forage in other areas. So in terms of ethical wildcrafting, there's really three basic rules that we like to follow. One is don't take more than you need. Um, just take as much as you need. Don't kill something if you just need a part of it. Um, and then the third one is don't take more than the population can stand. And really that last part is especially important when it comes to rock lichens. Rock lichens, um, when you're dying with lichen, you can boil it, which usually gives you your oranges, your browns, your yellows, or you can ferment certain ones, especially rock lichens that are very slow growing. Um, you can put them in a vat with half ammonia and half water and you shake them a couple times a day and et cetera, and that will allow you to create purples and pinks. Um, but rock lichens tend to be very slow growing and so you want to be very, very careful and they're very sensitive to um, air quality. So, you know, air quality is not as good as it used to be. So that's definitely something to think about. A lot of people who get into dying with lichens and if not dying with rock lichens, I have died in the past with them. I might still do a video on one. But again, you know, one of the rules would be when I'm out, I would never take more than 10%. I would never take more if there was a big rock face um, than 10% of, of any. And even then, I don't. I don't generally, um, I don't generally uh, die with rock lichens anymore. But you can. Um, and then the other, the other rule, too, with rock lichens is usually... You know, go out in a pair for safety, but just have one of you collecting. You know, you don't want to be collecting together for the same thing that the population. Um, another thing that's worth mentioning is what about dying with invasive. So um, one of the two terms that, that I think deserves to be sort of teased out is what is an exotic species and what is an invasive species. So just because something is from somewhere else, doesn't mean that it's doing harm. And a, a classic example here on the West Coast are English oaks. They're here. We plant them in the city, but they don't seem to be taking over. They don't seem to be growing wild. They're not out-competing anything. So we would call that an exotic species, whereas something like pansy is an invasive. Or Himalayan blackberry is a classic. It's not a good dyer, but it is. it takes over. It pushes out native plants. And it creates these sort of monoculture maps. Um, so when it comes to those types of species, they are from somewhere else, they're taking over, 
if you can die with them or do other crafting, you can really harvest as much as you want because you are helping by harvesting more of it. We are creating space for our native plants to, to, to grow. So that's an important consideration as well. And the other topic we should cover today is safety. What are some things you can do to make sure your forages are as safe as they possibly can? And this is, again, a nuanced area, especially if you are part of a targeted community. You're part of a community that is targeted by your race, by your gender identity, by your sexuality. Um, these are some really important questions. How do I stay safe and how do I feel safe in the woods? So. One of the things I would say for a forage is I would always treat it like you're going on a hike. So I would make sure to catch, you know, you need to communicate to where you're going. You want to carry, um, you know, you, you want to have your phone with you, but you can't always rely on that. So I would bring a compass. I would bring food. I would bring stuff for the weather. I would always want to have water with you. I would want to at least go with one other person or more when you're going out. Um, and have a check-in system set up, um, have a plan um, in case things can go sideways as they sometimes do. And as always, um, where I where I am in the woods, either for work or for foraging or hiking, um, I live in bear country, so I'm also trying to be very bear aware um, as well. So those are some things to think about for sure. Um, and in terms of being part of a targeted community, I have seen a lot of legwork being done on social media with foraging groups in different areas, taking lead where there's subgroups, you know, a leader to pay, you know, I'm part of this dark targeted community, um, and they'll do specific forages. Um, I think that is a really great idea. I think we need, you know, I would love to see more people doing that as well, um, because it is so important to get out and to feel safe and to be safe. And if you don't feel safe, then uh, then it's really just no fun at all. The other thing I want to talk about, maybe for the first time on this channel, is what do I do? What is my background and why am I addressing these challenges today? So I grew up here on the west coast of British Columbia. Um, my father uh, was a senior partner in a law firm. He quit his job when I was growing up to work full-time in the environmental movement. And so growing up... Um, you know, we would march and we would stuff envelopes and we would work on all these campaigns to save areas of old growth like Mears Island, Clackwood Sound, Flores Island. These are the these are the places that I grew up trying to protect. And as I got older, I started realizing when you're in conservation, you're passionate about conservation, you're up against people who have much deeper wallets and much better PR departments than you have. And I still see that to this day on social media, people um, in conservation, sort of a David and Goliath situation. So I was watching all this and I thought, I'm going to go into biology and I'm going to try and see if being a biologist will help me get a platform that can help me advocate better for biodiversity and conservation. And so I, I got my a degree in wildlife biology. Um, and I also, during that process, did a semester overseas in what was called um, Study in Africa program, which was a four-month program, like a semester. Uh, and I lived in tents in East Africa and saw um, what conservation was like in a very, very different um, regulatory and obviously geographically different area. Um, and that really gave me a basis for 
been very passionate about conservation in Africa. So after my degree, I went back. I got a master's this time in conservation biology, which is a branch of biology that looks at how you apply scientific principles and other systems of knowledge to active management on the ground. Um, so I got that degree, and then I stayed in Africa, and I worked uh, I did my master's with uh, WWF, World Wildlife Fund. I then did proposal writing for Conservation International, and again, in the fundraising uh, department, this time for the East Parks Foundation, which is an Africa-based organization with the lower 11 countries in Africa, looking at what are called Transfrontier Conservation Areas, or TFCAs. I was there with my husband which, for almost four years, um, and then we moved back to Canada. Um, and I've been here um, doing wildlife biology for now, how's it been, 12, 15 years, about that. Um, and so my main focus of my job is management of endangered or threatened wildlife species, um, some plants and some other stuff as well. But um, only it, mainly it's um, designing the field programs and looking for detections and management and looking at how we can adjust um, development that the government or other people want to have happen and how we can adjust that for for the management of species. And now, my last few years, I strictly just work with First Nations, supporting them in what they want to see in their, you know, you can call it traditional territories or traditional caregiver areas. Um, so making sure that uh, helping them advocate for the management that they want to see based on their traditional values, um, as well as helping get uh, funding for um, restoration works. So that's what I'm doing quite a bit of right now, and I absolutely love it. Um, so I've been, I've been active, I guess, on two continents in terms of conservation, and I, I feel really passionately about it. And uh, it wasn't until just within the last sort of five years or so that I've really thought about combining the things that I love. Um, the other piece of the puzzle is during all of this, um, I also do historical cosplay, which is uh, like a medieval recreation group that I'm a part of. Um, it's kind of like history as it should have been. So it's like history if it had been, you know, equity with women and um, sort of EDI stuff or equity, inclusivity and diversity, um, uh, you know, queer positive spaces for uh, historical recreation is kind of the idea. That's about it for this video. Feel free to post below if you have any questions. And like and subscribe for more content on Natural Buying. Hello. I'm picking up some extra feedback on my side. I'm sorry about what was coming through earlier. That was me. I had thought I hadn't muted myself, and I had muted myself, and I pushed the wrong button. But right now, I'm picking up some extra feedback that's not on my side. So I'm not sure what that's about. I'm too unfamiliar with this program. Um, perhaps, oh, I think I see what happened here. Let me do this. Okay, I think now I figured out another part of it. So I apologize. I'm learning this system. I feel like I'm learning all of the time. I push my own boundaries all of the time. So when I encourage you all to push your boundaries, to push your thought processes, to push yourselves to go out and experience the wild, know that I push myself just as much. And so 
I do have another person here with me, apparently, and that I did not know. So that was a new piece. Very fun. I was actually going to talk about that during the conversation today, and I would have completely forgot if that hadn't happened. So I guess that was a little bit of serendipity there or synchronicity. When we are building community, we talked about how we have to put ourselves out there. And a part of that is learning new things. While my husband had dabbled with the idea of disc golf for nearly 20 years, he had never been serious about it, had never really purchased his own discs. He just found discs that didn't have identifying marks on them and been given gifts that were used discs so that he could go play with other people, things along that nature. So when he went into the disc golf world, he wasn't just exploring a new community and new parks, he was exploring a new sport. When we rewild, many of us are coming from a place of very little interaction with nature. Some of us are coming from very small interaction with community. And when we go out to do these things, we're asking ourselves to expand our horizons and our experiences and that can be very challenging. It's also very rewarding. Sometimes I get a little bit overwhelmed. I am currently building a new business. I already run one business. And the secondary business is collectively rewilding. And I had to learn a new element of Mighty Networks. And for this radio show, I had to learn several new pieces of software, not just this radio streaming service itself of blog talk radio for freedomizerradio.com but also the equipment that i needed to interact with my microphone my headset i had sort of resisted getting those pieces for oh i don't know six or seven years now of live streaming and i finally went ahead and put the investment of money and knowledge building into how to use these devices. I cheat a little bit. My oldest daughter, she's a teenager, so she helps me with a lot of this. But I do learn as I go along. I've had to learn how to use Fiverr in order to create the logos for Collectively Rewilding, a transparency program so that I could utilize a portion of the logos that I had created. There were programs to download those YouTube videos that we listened to. I can't even tell you. I know there were several other pieces. Really, very simple each step in and of itself, but everything is a little off-putting when we're first approaching it, when we don't know ourselves, fear of the unknown. So all of these steps that we're taking, we're taking it together. And that's something I talk about in the other community that I work so closely with on Mighty Networks in Let's Go Help Too. We're all learning about the grant hunting world. So I'm always telling our community in our classes that that's one of the best parts about that particular community is that we recognize we're all learning together. And that's exactly the type of energy that I would like to bring into Collectively Rewilding. As I've stated over and over, we're all experiencing this together in the real-time, brand-new experience 
of trying to fix what we're really fully recognizing we've broken. There's still conjecture about what is and is not broken and how much of a part humanity had to play in any brokenness that's there. What I'm going to say to that is I don't care about the politics of it. I know that the world that I had for my first 20 years, the 80s and 90s, was much different climactically, even though I'm still in very comparable regions. I've just circled here in the southwest, up into Idaho and Wyoming a little bit, yes, but primarily the southwest of our country. And that climate has shifted. Cortez, Colorado, where I was born, is much drier. The uh, area of Salt Lake here that I'm living in currently, I drove in it about 20 years ago when I lived up in Idaho. I'd have to drive back and forth from Colorado to Idaho through Utah. And the amount of humanity that has filled this valley in 20 years is almost breathtaking. It went from the isolated patch off to the east of Salt Lake City with a few skyscrapers and some other various towns along the way with many stretches of wild lands in between each separated community along the stretch of road I traveled. And now there is a solid stretch of humanity going for at least four or five hours out of that road trip that I used to take. Such tremendous change in 20 years. Whether we look at it as a positive or a negative, we are a part of the diversity that is our natural global functioning system. We are adapting it, we think, for our betterment, for our comfort, for our progress in that bottom line, and those of us here on the ground are beginning more and more to recognize that that bottom line and that ever increasing productivity level in the mechanical and in industrial fashion are simply not sustainable. It's been talked about since I can remember my entire life, 45 years, not the most tremendous lifespan, not necessarily a short lifespan. From my conscious memory on, there has been discussion about the fact that the practices that we consider normal are damaging. In Moab right now, Moab, Utah, they shut off something like 337 miles of off-roading trail networks. And people are really upset about it. And I do love going out into nature. And I've been around the boys, and the boys like to go out and get rough with the woods and with the desert. And I was never a very big fan of it. And of course, as I've learned more and more about what these systems are, I favor it less and less. We do, however, have to be realistic in the fact that there are this many people on the planet and they all have their various ideologies, wants, needs, thought processes about what is and is not the correct method to move forward. I think that 337 miles out of somewhere around 1,260 miles, I can't remember exactly, is a reasonable compromise. 
I do think that when they also at the exact same time remove people's ability even to go and walk along some of those trails, that they may have done it in such a strict fashion that the overt feedback and negativity they're going to receive may damage their intentions. That could have been the uh, intended goal, I think, perhaps, but a more incremental step towards that process, even if it was relatively quickly done over, say, a five-year period would be much more accepted by the community that is this off-roading outdoor community built almost exclusively on tourism around those concepts and that they would have received a lot more receptivity engaging that community in furthering healing the natural biologies of those regions. Let's go ahead and shift topics because we're going to run out of time if we don't go ahead and head in over to fall fun in the garden and what to do to keep gardening as the coal sets in. I love being in the garden. I dream about it, awake or asleep, and especially when I'm in my moves where I have very little connection with the ability to interact with some sort of gardening activity such as the first apartment complex that we lived in here in the Salt Lake Valley. I've been very blessed to have experienced primarily living situations that allowed a lot of light into my dwelling. In Idaho, the first apartment I had up there, it was very dark. And that was the first time I really experienced anything like that. And it was very hard on me. I was very happy to get out of that apartment and into a well-lit, teeny tiny little old home such a cute little construct with the natural foundation and um, additions that you could see over probably a hundred years of being a building. The darkness is really hard on many of us. And even those of us who like the dark may not realize that it's affecting our health not to spend a portion of our time in direct sunlight. Well, here in Utah, I haven't been as fortunate, and each of the locations that we've lived in, our interior building is incapable of hosting plant life, with the exception of one room in the first two apartments. And in this one here that we're currently residing in, there is not a single room in the house that's able to support the average plant with the amount of light that comes in. So I spend a lot of time outside. I'm always making my kids go outside into the light, and my husband works outside. So we really strive to get that light. But the Salt Lake Valley itself is tremendously cloudy, as was Boise. They both experience inversions due to the mountain ranges that are around their cities. And it's not talked about, at least, as much here in the Salt Lake Valley that the inversions are detrimental to your health. So I don't know if it's just not talked about or if perhaps it is more detrimental up in Idaho when these inversions happen. But there are many days here that are cloud covered. I'm used to living in LA and San Diego and Cortez and uh, Prescott and Quartzsite and these just tremendously sunny locations. Wyoming has enormous numbers of sunny days. 
why, uh, Idaho, I didn't ever feel a lack of sun. So I believe that without looking at the stats, I haven't looked at Idaho's stats, that Idaho may have had a few more sunny days than what we experience here in the Salt Lake Valley. I'm really glad that we moved to Magna for a number of reasons, but one of those is that being closer to the western mountain range, which I'm going to eventually figure out. I'm just going to have to look at it on a map. I keep hoping one of these locals will know what their western mountain range is called, and I'm about ready to give up, but that's one of the things I do in community building. I try to engage people from that area in talking about that area so that I know more about it and it usually is of interest to the people that have resided there for a period of time. And I'm finding a difficulty with it in Utah. Utah is a very unique place, but I'm gonna keep working on it, everybody, I promise you. And anyway, as we went closer to this mountain range, the clouds pushed more towards the center of the valley. We get a lot more sunlight here in Magna. Taylorsville, it just seemed like it was always cloudy. And when I look back over to that part of the valley from here in Magna, I will see cloud cover there almost every single day. So when we experience these difficult dwellings, I learned a lot actually about gardening because of the difficulty. And I wouldn't be surprised if the other person online is Danielle. And if she would like to speak up, she should definitely let me know because she gave me, oh my goodness, the hardest time about not being able to grow in that first location. Um, there are methods that I thought of that would have worked, but they were very impractical for me to employ. And we didn't get any sunlight in our front porch area, in our home, with the exception of that one room, or on our back porch. Now on the back porch, if I hadn't been so far away from the back area to get to it every day to take care of it, we could have hung some container gardens and grown something there. And I wouldn't have really worried about people from the streets taking it or anything. The idea then for me would just have been to experience any sort of growing at all. But I would have had to have walked almost around the entire outer edge of the complex in order for it to work for me to get to it. And it just wasn't practical, no way to water it in that sense and all of that. But that would have been the only way that we could have grown there. And so because of those extreme lighting conditions, I learned a lot more about paying attention to the lighting patterns of any property that I'm on. And here again, I'm under some relatively extreme lighting conditions, even for our outdoor area because of the construction that they did to split this into two apartments. Now, it's definitely something that I can grow in. However, there is one tiny stretch that I'm going to have to do some serious work to figure out the right kind of plants to get to develop there. It has absolutely no direct sunlight. It's going to have to just be diffuse sunlight in order to get some sort of plant to create a consistent level of vegetation because that's one of the areas that causes flooding here in our apartment if there is a large amount of rainfall. All of that mulch wash, washed off of that area, didn't help to block any of the flood itself, and was a huge mess because I wasn't able to get any of the plants to take root there. So this coming gardening season, I'm going to look for the most shade tolerant plants that I can find that are appropriate for this area because I really need to get that ground stabilized with the introduction of appropriate plants. Really fun challenges though. I really enjoy it. 
with the fall fun that we have in the garden. I went through so many different articles. One, because I'm finally back into a property where I can really get my hands dirty. And two, because I'm wanting to share with others the methodologies that I find the most positive and proactive. That way they can determine for themselves what they would like to work with. I like to provide a huge variety. I do even provide some variety that I disagree with. I will put up the things that I do disagree with, but I absolutely want everybody to come to their own determinations. And so I provide as much variety as I can. I also do tend to follow my own biases with a little bit more strength. It's not accidental. It's intentional. I would like to discuss those things that I'm the most interested in, just as we all are. But also the overarching premise or reasoning behind creating Collectively Rewilding was to provide a forum where others could do the exact same thing. I love discussion. And what I was trying to remember earlier was academic circles. Oh my goodness, that word would just not come into my mind. But I love those types of discussions. And I have them with all sorts of people, far, far outside of just so-called academic circles. I really love to hear what everybody has to think both that they're interested in and the topics that I'm currently focusing on. That's part of what I do when I'm building community. And that's what I'm doing when I'm sharing the ideas and possibilities, suggestions, activities that others are doing in their rewilding, all of the fun activities that you can do in the fall. I've shared articles about leaf mulching, why you don't want to remove that beautiful collection of nutrients that's being generated by the plants on your property. We listened to M.I. Gardner talk about how he took all of the leftover parts of the plants that were growing for him that season. He finished his harvest, broke it all up, and put it into his trench. I'm even more, you might even say laissez-faire than that. I don't really feel that it is laissez-faire. I love being active. I find something to fill my time with. I'm always working at things. But I think that a more laid back and, yes, natural approach to our gardens is a positive setting. What I mean by that is I'm going to allow my plants to get hit by the frost that takes them out. And then I'm going to just softly trample them down where they are, breaking up those that have really tough stems near the base of the soil and not pulling the roots out of the ground. I think that what M.I. Gardner shared with you is a fantastic method that you can employ. However, when we look out into a natural setting, you don't see that type of activity very often. You might see some soil fall down in a collapse of some sort on the hill, on a mountain, and then you basically have the same process where you just covered up a large portion of vegetation. However, it's not just a typical thing that you see in a natural setting. So while I 
share that with you and encourage you to consider that as a possibility, just as I will for many different things that may not fully align with my exact thought process, I'm going to pursue it in my fashion. And that will be to more closely mimic what I've experienced in a natural setting. I was, again, so fortunate to grow up in an environment that was so much closer to its natural origins than many places are today. Southwest Colorado is hard. It's very uh, dry, even into our forests. They are drier forests. We have juniper and pinyon in the driest areas that have natural tree life. We have cacti down there. It is well known for its harshness that contributes to its beauty. And so it didn't gain the population numbers that many other areas have seen, similar to Wyoming. Wyoming has some very harsh and, yes, beautiful environments, but you don't see as much of our population trending towards those areas because they are harder to live in. Now, we're starting to see a shift in that, and I have read some articles along those lines as well. They're calling it another sort of uh, poverty, oh, goodness, um, I don't remember what the word is, but, you know, when you're picking on a segment of population, this being picking on the poorest, which is, well, at least a good 50% of us, I, I certainly fall into those ranks, the 99, whatever those actual percentages are, we're out there and it's hard. And our rents have doubled in about five years. It's outrageous the amounts that we're being charged for sustenance basics, necessities. These things are out of control. We are all very aware of that. Um, and so, oh goodness, I totally lost my train of thought there. I apologize. Yep, it's gone. So anyway, these harsh environments, they don't draw the population numbers. I guess that's where it was. And so it's still actually relatively more natural in the Southwest area of Colorado and all of the Four Corners regions with Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The southwest portion of Colorado that leads into the Four Corners and all of the corresponding areas there are all very harsh, getting harsher and harsher, of course, as you head into Arizona and New Mexico. So that leaves us with a lot of open land. And I love it. I love the deserts. I love the high desert forests, as they call the forests in our area. I love the plant life. I love the animal life. I love the geography. I love the people. They may not always love me, but I love them. I have some very new age thought processes, as you've all heard quite clearly, and that doesn't always fit in the very conservative corner down there of Colorado. It's about the only remaining stronghold of conservative mentality, but it doesn't always fit. However, it is a glorious area. Go and experience the wild wherever you are, and it will help you to rejuvenate. So let's draw it back into the fall fun, however, right? With all of that that I've experienced in the natural world, I want to draw that into what I'm doing here in my area of influence. I have such a generous landlady letting me pretty much play with it as I please. You just couldn't ask for a better setting if you want to be able to garden while you're a renter. 
and I will be incorporating so much of what I'm learning with you all as we share that together in Collectively Rewilding. One of the things that I really learned that I talked about just a little there was leaving the root structures in the soil. Even if you want to remove that property, if you don't want to break up the soil structure, which is something I'm really opposed to and was absolutely necessary, you don't want to pull your weeds. If it's something that you are really trying to get rid of and the only way is to pull the weeds, to pull the roots, that is absolutely going to happen upon occasion. It shouldn't be your overall mentality in approaching the plant life in the areas that you're maintaining. Those roots are a part of the communication network. When they're alive, they are all interacting. And then even after they've died, such as an annual plant, they break down slowly, providing the nutrients back into the soil that they utilize to grow in the first place. They create aeration in the soil. They break up the compaction. Those roots are a viable part of all of your soil's health. And so as you're breaking down the components of your garden, try to keep that in mind. You may not want to disturb the roots of any plants that you're winterizing. When the spring comes, those plants that are still remaining and are detracting from the overall garden, I'll go ahead and just clip at the base. But for the most part, just kind of walking through my garden, letting the weather happen, uh, happen here in Utah, of course, you know, good amount of weathering going on every winter. And all of that is going to create basically the mulch of the preceding or following year, excuse me. That mulch is something that we pay for. Now, if you want it to look more uniform and these, that, the other thing, there is absolutely nothing wrong with providing an overall mulching like hay or wood chips, any of these types of natural mulches that are going to break down over time are going to be fabulous. But the actual material that's in your garden already from the preceding season, there we go, is a mulch in and of itself. And that variety is also very positive. So even if you do like to have that overall uniformity, putting it over the plants of the preceding season increases the amount of nutrients that are going to be available to your following plants because you don't just have one type of breakdown, not just your hay, not just your wood chips. It's going to be all of the variety that came from that. People talk about the molds and the things like this, and I just really love and my gardeners take on that. Molds exist in the soil. Where it becomes a real issue is when it becomes overrun. If all of your house plants have that powdery mildew, you've got a major problem. One plant having that in a more natural setting is going to be a part of the natural processes. Molds, fungi, viruses, bacteria, all of these things are a part of our natural world. When we determine so strongly that one is bad and one is good, just like we talked about last week, you create such unnatural systems that you end up with children who ask to live in a plastic bubble. Good and bad is a misnomer. Yes, there are things that we want to promote and things that we want to avoid, absolutely, but trying to avoid assiduously every sort of identifiable microbe 
that you've determined is bad is also bad. Keep your plants where they are if there's not an infestation. In my opinion, you're going to be contributing to the overall diversity of what your yard's biome is. With what we're going to be doing here for our continued fall cleanup, like I said, we're just going to be entering into the freezing temperatures a little teeny bit last night and a little more tonight and the next uh, two nights. With that, my plants may or may not survive. Most of my continuing plants at this point are in that protected side yard that we talked about. So they may retain enough heat to survive this little period. But we're going to get, I've gotten permission from our landlady, and we're going to have that brought here. And just slowly, over time, we're going to move all of those wood chips into both areas of the backyard, into the side yard, and a little bit of the front yard where there's some delineated gardening spaces for ornamental plants and things up in the front area. I am so excited about this. This is going to continue the process of healing the soil that had become so compacted that weeds weren't even able to exist in the largest portion of all of these various yards outside of the front yard, which is itself just crabgrass. I'm leaving that alone. The landlady wants it just left alone. I don't like lawns. I wouldn't want to try to amend that crabgrass until it became a more traditional grass format for a horrible misuse of arable soil. So that's fine with me. Crabgrass is healthier than most, um, not artificial in the sense that it is a chemically created construct artificial grass, but yes, an artificial uh, biological construct, right, lawns. They are not a natural construct in most climates. Where they come from, being England, there is a more, well, that's probably not even true. We think of it as a more natural, grassy type setting, but England used to be forested, just as Thailand. We talked about all the forests that are being cut down and these island nations where all the trees are being cut down. England went through that. England and Scotland went through that as well. They were much more heavily forested at an earlier time period. However, the grass that we see there is native to England, and it's a climate that doesn't require as much artificial maintenance as what we see, especially here in the Southwest. In the wetter climates over on the East Coast, all along down into the Southern regions, it is a little different. However, just rolling anything is not a typical natural construct. There may be an overwhelming amount of certain plants in a valley or on a hill slope, these things. But if you really get in closely, you're going to see there is so much more than just that one plant that you're really focusing on. So we want to keep that in mind as we plan future gardens. The health of our soil will benefit from moving away from that lawn construct and into the more natural, if yes, artificially created spaces that we live in. Trees, 
Trees are a great fall activity, bushes and trees. This is a great time to trim them back, to bring some new ones in. In fact, here in my area of Utah, according to the Arbor Day Foundation, you shouldn't even worry about it too much until about mid-November through mid-December, that that's some of your best tree planting time. Those are things we can keep doing if we want to stay active out there in the soil, out there with our plants and food production or apiary activities. I'm really interested in possibly working towards a community beehive as well. It's the beehive state after all. I'm hoping I get some traction there. There were several different types of honeybees that showed up here. Um, I don't know what the predominant beekeeping honeybee they choose here in this area. In fact, one of the activities I'm going to pursue this winter is to start reaching out to the beekeeping association or associations as it may be, I'm not sure, here in the Salt Lake Valley to see what sorts of bees they prefer. I think we talked about it last week, the Russian honeybee that they uh, use quite a lot in the apiary industry is my particular favorite just from reading about it. And I believe that there were some Russian bees here. I also think that there were some buckwheat bees, perhaps. It's harder to find region-specific beekeeping books. And I have found one that I do want to get. The one that I'm reading is from a gentleman in Sweden. Um, when I read an article the other day, there were so many types of honeybee described over in the Middle Eastern region and European regions of our world. So, so many more than we commonly think of. Really interesting how each of the different honeybee species or breeds interact with their environment, whether they tend to swarm a lot, how much honey they produce, how uh, large their colonies uh, they keep. All of these different things help to distinctify between the different bees. One of the things I'm going to focus on going into my fall planning for next year is going to be to increase the number of species I have that encourage and support the pollinating colonies. Something else that I think would be worthy of doing would be to create some environments that are habitats for actually the wasps and hornet, uh, yellow jacket species in this area because they really love the sunflowers before any of the current habitants of this dwelling came to be, they had planted sunflowers up in those decorative gardening areas in the front yard, and they proliferated. The wasps and the hornets and things love those sunflowers. Well, I love sunflowers too. I also want to support pollinators, so I don't want to remove those sunflowers. I am going to cut them back from the walk about at least six inches to a foot so that we're not disturbing the pollinators and the pollinators aren't disturbing us. However, I believe providing them with a good habitat outside of just almost living on these sunflowers. I saw them hiding from the rain on them. I saw them sleeping on them. There are these 
little constructs that you can make or buy that are basically WASP hotels or housing units, and it encourages them to live in a place that isn't in your walls or right next to you constantly in the flowers, that they come and they visit the flowers and they do their normal rounds, but that they do have another area that they can exist in that's habitable for them, right? And it is very distinct. They require a like hollowed out area of a small piece of wood or a reed or something to that nature, but it has to have a stopper at the back and it only wants to be a certain depth. Uh, I think it was something like less than three inches deep or else it caused different kinds of problems for the little critters. And so I'm going to experiment with that and see if it's not a little bit more comfortable for the children in this space who are very upset about all of the pollinator activity. One of my daughters and a couple of the children upstairs do not like how much pollinator activity there is. Well, a natural system has bugs, both good and bad, as M.I. Gardner talked about, and finding the best ways that we can coexist is really something that I think is not only fascinating, but something that we should strive for. When we listened to Wildcraft Dying, talking about all the work that they were doing across their various fields of expertise, one of the things that came to my mind when she was talking about how appropriate interaction with a natural system from humans can be a positive part of the biosystem. I always think about the Iroquois and they interacted with their environment by, yes, promoting what they wanted, but understanding the natural systems, simply incorporating a little bit more of the plants that they want, encouraging a blueberry patch here or a more open area here, things of that nature without being an invasive species, essentially, which is what I think we tend to uh, trend towards as a culture. They promoted what was good for them while interacting in a more natural fashion. And all animals and insects and living organisms interact with their environment. We just need to determine a better way of interacting. And so incorporating positive structures for things like birds in oak trees and a variety of insect species, butterfly caterpillars, all of the butterfly larva caterpillars, right? All of these things can bring nature back in to play while still allowing us to function at our best. Having a more natural and functioning healthy environment will help us to be at our best. All right. Last topic is that of what you can do to keep gardening as those freezes continue and become full winter. There are several things, of course, that we can do. In certain climates, you can just continue. Callie Kim 29, one of the featured content creators there in Collectively Rewilding, works in her garden pretty well throughout the year, 
out of doors. She's also talking to people about coming indoors. That's one of the options that we have. I struggle with container gardening and indoor lighting. I have a lot to learn in that regard. And so I pay a lot of attention, but it's one that I struggle with and don't feel like I'm extremely gifted at talking about. However, they're the options that we have. Also, heated greenhouses and one that I am more familiar with and that is really a little less commonly known is that of cold frame gardening. And a cold frame is simply about 6 to 12 inches dug into the ground in a square or rectangular form that you place a glass covering of some sort over. My preferred method being reclaiming wooden windows, uh, windows still in their wooden frames and incorporating that into a latched structure so that you can raise that window and access your plants and vegetables, your fruits and vegetables, and then lower that back down, similar to a greenhouse. You can grow lettuces and radishes and green onions, kale, the cold weather crops that you can start off with in early spring or have a late season of if you plant them in the fall into the starting of the wintering of your climate and extend that even into sometimes January. Uh, for the warming that we're going through, I believe that there are years that here in Utah or in Colorado, maybe not Idaho or Wyoming, where that cold frame gardening could extend you through the entire year. You could have a couple of those, definitely, and have a variety of fresh salad greens through the coldest part of the year. Pretty amazing type of recycling uh, in your gardening, right? If you go and you reclaim the windows, you can do it for greenhouses as well. I've seen greenhouses built primarily out of reclaimed old windows. It's really amazing. The things that we can save money with, respect resources with, and increase our ability to interact with the natural world all at the same time. That's why there are so many solutions. But we can't look to our government. We can't look to our religious leaders. We can't look to these corporations to be the changes that need to happen now. As Wildcraft Dying mentioned, it's these people sitting around a table making decisions for us all that aren't making the decisions that are really going to move us forward. We need to be that cliche change that we want to see. I say cliche because I have a friend who is from the Indian culture, and just as Monsanto had a pretty devastating effect on the Indian country, so did some of what Gandhi perpetuated. And I wouldn't take a stand on that, but there's definitely some talk out there about the fact that not everything Gandhi promoted even maybe originated from him, right? So. When we look to these leaders, these governmental figures, these saviors, 
as we want them to be, to change what is, is into something that's more sustainable, we're leading ourselves to our own destruction, setting ourselves up for failure, because so often those that we look to for that leadership, for that inspiration, are doing so for a hidden reason and a very overt reason of that bottom line. The bottom line has very little mattering in the natural world. If we keep striving for the bottom line rather than health, health as an individual, health as a community, health as an environment, we're going to bottom line ourselves out of existence. So to me, I only participate with the fiscal realities that we live in today as much as I have to. I do not agree with a cashless system. I don't really necessarily see a truly viable alternative to a healthy non-cash structure, meaning still in the physical world, not this Bitcoin uh, hugely manipulatable realm of cashless currency, but some other system to replace it in its entirety. I've not ever heard of a true viable solution proffered, and I can't think of one myself. It's Barter only has so much value when we talk in the quantities that we do today. It simply doesn't equate to our reality on all levels. You can certainly barter still today, and I witness it all the time, partake of it whenever I realistically can. It isn't a feasible system for such a complex system, like we discussed in that article earlier. But if we focus on that to the exclusion of the natural system, again, we lose. We need to begin to integrate all of these pieces. And a part of that ongoing discussion could be basing a wise use of resources within the overall fiscal mentality of our globe somewhat like we used to actually have that whole pride of workmanship, that quality being built in because someone wanted to produce something that could last through generations. And then in the 50s, they decided that that wasn't a so-called sustainable model. And we as a representative um Oh, goodness. And now this is losing me. Uh, open market concept, right? Uh, this representative open market concept couldn't work if products lasted an enormous amount of time. And as we know today, that was simply a ridiculous thought to have ever perpetuated, it was already in the so-called baby boomer days there where there were so many people replacing their parents already, they should have never been able to succeed in creating this thought process that you needed to have a shelf life on products 
so that you could continue to sell to the consumers. However, that's where our leaders in our government took us, and we need to take that back. The more we handcraft things, as Melvin Cordell does with his bricks, as Lily does with Lily's pad and her soaps and her cosmetics and her natural cleansers for dishes and laundry and these things, each area that we take back, that we rewild, that we relearn and rethink, we become our own solution to the problems that we here at the ground level generally didn't create in the first place. All right, everyone, we have just a little bit of time until we close out here. I did want to play one more piece for you from the Wildcraft Dying. And this time we'll give her the whole floor and get everybody properly muted. So we have 25 natural dying tips to close out today's show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Science Fiber. And these are my top 25 dye tricks that will help you get into dyeing and become a better dyer, especially if you're interested in foraging for your own dyes. Now, I've built these tips and tricks up over 20 years of learning and teaching dyeing. I use them pretty much every time I'm getting ready to dye, and also what I use to help me improve my knowledge, grow my skills, and create more colors. So here they are. Number one, online resources, specifically mining social media for inspiration and information. Hunt through natural dye groups on social media like Facebook and see what colors people are getting. For example, there are dye groups on Facebook with thousands of members posting their photos and their experiments, processes, and results with different kinds of dye material all the time. Groups like Natural Dyeing, Natural Dyes, and Mushroom and Lichen Dyers United. So don't be afraid to join these groups. Scroll through and see what piques your interest. See what results people have gotten before, the successes and the failures. Also, when you find something interesting, go through the comments where people share their own experiences and advice with the dye materials. Now, the flip side of that is you should also be contributing to the knowledge as well in these groups. So don't forget to post your experiments and results, both what worked and what didn't work, and let other dyers help you. Number two, check out local workshops run through museums, nature clubs, community centers, shops that sell textile supplies. There might be more going on around you than you realize. People have been dying modernly since at least the 1980s, and a lot of older dyers have a wealth of knowledge but might not be active online. Number three, when I'm soaking my pre-mordanted fiber leading up to dyeing with it, I always soak the iron-mordanted fiber separately from the alum-mordanted fiber. I also make sure to give the iron-mordanted fiber a really good long rinse. Iron can quite easily contaminate the colors you're wanting from the alum-mordanted fiber and darken them or reduce the brightness of the dye uptake. I usually do this by simply soaking the yarns in separate jars. Number four, temperature bridges. Be gentle with your fiber and your dye materials. Be sure to heat your fiber slowly and cool your fiber slowly. For example, I usually leave the fiber to cool overnight. Shocking your fiber with big temperature shifts can make it extremely sticky and difficult to work with as it keeps felting up. Number five, temperature range. Also do some research into what temperature ranges work best for the material you're working with. 
For example, alkanet, which is a root that gives delicious purples, doesn't work well above 60 degrees Celsius or 140 degrees Fahrenheit, while matter likes temperatures in the 80s range or 176 Fahrenheit range to really pop. So set your temperature by what works best with the material you're using. But in general, don't let your fiber or dye materials boil. This can destroy or denature your dye pigments and is generally tough on wool fibers. Number six, if you're going to be experimenting a lot, think about buying wool in larger amounts, more than whole skeins, and then separate it off into smaller hanks in the same size. So for example, I've worn a big skein with alum. I then cut it into a bunch of 20 meter or 65 foot lengths, tie them off, and then they're ready to go in a bag. This means I can come home with something new to try and have my results in a lot less time. Number seven, you can pick up a lot secondhand. Use Facebook marketplace, garage sales, but try not to use enamel canning pots as the enamel inevitably chips, revealing the iron pots beneath, which can affect your colors. Stick with aluminum pots or steel. My pots are aluminum. I know some people don't recommend steel, but I haven't had an issue, and if that's all you can find, I say go for it. Number eight, yarn equipment. Invest in a Swift and a ball winder if you can, especially the Swift. These tools help make your life a lot easier when tackling different projects with yarn. Number nine, invest in a dehydrator if you want to get more into the mushroom side. Mushroom drying and storage is a lot easier and a lot less slimy with a dehydrator. Number 10, invest in some key books, field guides for foraging and dye books for the dye process. I usually have a plant like in a mushroom field guides in my car and my dye books at home for reference. It's hard to advise on what field guides will work best for your area, so if you have a local nature club, I would check with them. Number 11, don't be afraid of the chemistry. Get a good book and dive in. Helping understand some basics here will help you become a better dyer and fill in some knowledge gaps. It will also help streamline getting the best colors and eliminate many of the issues that plague you dyers, including how to narrow down which variables and choices are gonna help get you the colors you want. Number 12, color fastness. Now color fastness relates to how stable and permanent a dye is. Some dyes are great at withstanding the fading effects of sunshine, weather elements and repeated washings and just the march of time, but others are less so. So I think only dyeing with those materials that are color fast is limiting though when it comes to the joy and exploration of dyeing. Color fastness is an important consideration, especially if you're selling your products though. For example, if you're selling products and the colors aren't going to last, it can give natural dyeing a bad name. Or maybe you're creating items that you want to see used for many years. Then light fastness should be a big factor. But don't be afraid to experiment with materials just for the joy of the process. For example, the mushroom Tapinella atratomentosa, aka Velvet Footed Packs, is one of the first dye mushrooms of the season and gives purples, but the color eventually fades to grays but I don't let that stop me from the sheer joy of collecting them in August and September and heralding in the fall with its purple. Don't let anyone talk you out of trying food scraps either. Embrace the beauty and transient nature of some dyes. Number 13, learn more about pH and how shifting it can dramatically affect colors with some dye materials. For example, boosting pH in many of the mushroom dyes helps bring out the purples, greens, and blues, while in other mushrooms, a splash of vinegar can make those yellows pop with luminous gold tones. Number 14, don't be afraid to experiment. If you start getting into some of the double boiler method of jars within a pot, you can do a few experiments at the same time using the same temperatures, and it's not really that much more work. 
I find keeping some pre-mourned and skeins ready in my kitchen along with some basic equipment helps me to run a dye experiment quickly and can often combine that while making dinner or lunch. Number 15, you need different processes if you're dyeing animal fibers like wool or mohair versus dyeing with plant matter like linen, cotton, or nettle. Generally, plant fibers require a few more components in the dye process. Most of my channel is wool because that's what I like to weave and knit with. Number 16, by the same token, don't be afraid of the biology either. Check out volunteer and or nonprofit nature clubs in your area. There are many people who don't use social media or even do much online who have a wealth of knowledge and lead monthly nature walks or clubs that have monthly talks in the evening. This is a great way to learn about the mushrooms, lichens, and plants in your area. Number 17, become aware of foraging regulations and laws for your region. Figure out where you can legally forage and where you cannot. Respect those laws. Ask permission as needed. I use parks for my photography of dye materials and save the foraging for areas I can forage in. Also, try not to head out alone. Take a friend and treat forage as seriously as you would a hike in terms of safety and preparation. Number 18, lean into the seasonality of dyeing. There are things to find in every season, from the roots and flowers of spring to the seeds of summer, from the mushrooms of autumn to the more mushrooms and <laughs> tree bark of winter. There's always something out there to make color with. Number 19, you don't need to head into the wilderness to find color. As long as there are dandelions poking out of the sidewalk, roadside ditches to explore, you'll be surprised what can grow in urban and rural areas, especially in some of the most disturbed habitats. Number 20, you can also grow your own dye plants in pots, planters, and gardens. I realize this is not an option for everyone, but it can be another fun way to explore an interesting aspect of this hobby. Number 21, dyeing is a great hobby to take up if you have children at home. I love so many aspects of working with fiber, from knitting to spinning to weaving, and it all took a massive hit when I became a mom. The idea of trying to find time to sit on my couch to knit or weave on a loom just wasn't working. But dyeing, you can do it standing up in your kitchen while also making fish sticks at the same time. It also gets you out and about with your kids in some fun areas. And as you generally move more slowly as you forage anyway, the speed can work well for little kids. Also, kids are generally closer to the ground. So they're more likely to see things you might miss. So put them to work. My children are three, five, and seven in age. And I do more dyeing now and more consistently than I ever did before they arrived. Also, foraging for dyeing has helped give me some needed inspiration on places to take them on hikes, go on nature walks to learn more, and even helping me make the colors at home. Just please be careful to teach your children that these things are not for eating. Number 22, make sure you store everything safely so children cannot get into it. I have my mordant and other chemicals up high in my workshop. I use childproof containers as much as I can. I also make sure to talk to my kids about pointing out mushrooms and not picking them until we've had a chance to identify it. Number 23, there are three rules of wild harvesting or ethical wild crafting. Learn them and please follow them. These are A, don't kill something when you can just take a part. B, don't take more than you need. And C, don't ever take more than the population can stand. Number 24, I think sometimes foraging in general can get a bad rap, whether it's for dying or for food but I think that's because we need a paradigm shift. Right now we live in cities which either have condos or parks. What if in addition to the parks and new urban food garden movement, we also had wild spaces where people could forage? We're encouraged to forage in. I think this might help connect more people to the beauty of nature. I think this could help foster 
conscientious nature stewards. Number 25, have fun and don't be afraid to gift your own naturally dyed yarn to friends and family who do fiber arts. These are amazing gifts that represent your time, effort, and love. That's it for now. Hope it was useful. Feel free to like and subscribe for more videos on exploring foraging and natural dyeing. I think I did my closeout while I was muted and I unmuted my guest. So I apologize. I had a nice little spiel. I hope you all have a wonderful evening. Good night, everyone.